Are you tired of the mainstream media's condescension, snap judgments, and outrageous bias? National Review's podcast, The Editors, is your oasis of sanity and clarity in a world gone mad. Join National Review writers like Rich Lowry, Charles C. W. Cook, Jim Garrity, Jack Butler, and others for an in-depth analysis and incisive commentary on the latest news in American political life. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bienvenidos. That's California for welcome to the January 23rd edition of National Review's Radio Free California podcast. I'm Will Swain, president of the California Policy Center. You can find my colleagues and me at CaliforniaPolicyCenter.org. You can find my friend and co-host David Bonson right here. He's an economist, the author of the book Full-Time, Work and the Meaning of Life, and the host of the Capital Record podcast. He is, of course, the founder of the eponymous investment firm, The Bonson Group. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And uh, yeah, it's fun to have it updated. My author of Full-Time Work in the Meaning of Life versus the good old days of author of There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. It's now an old, antiquated book. Um, well, I, I don't know if it's antiquated, but it is old. Uh, yeah. Hey, I wonder... Older, older. You know, I, I may have cornered you in our last episode when I suggested you might be willing to part with a few... Um, I'm very uh, happy to part copies. with a few books for our lovely listeners. What do you recommend? Could you be more specific? Yeah. <laughs> sure. How about uh, we offer the books in exchange for um, any evidence they can provide that they rated and reviewed the show? Uh, yeah, let's do that uh, for the first 50 reviews. And then... Uh, five and zero? Five yeah. zero? Wow. Okay, very generous. We'll get that right. many reviews? Yeah, I just think that's a very generous uh, couple of boxes of books, I would imagine. So thanks well, for that. It is, it is very generous. We you want me to go less? No, no, I do not. Don't be less generous. Uh, hey, but I am wondering if you will indulge me for the usual uh, historical digression here. Uh, I was reading the uh, the local papers last week, and it turned out that one of them, just one, mentioned that Dolores Huerta, she is the co-founder with Cesar Chavez, the United Farm Workers Union, uh, she was uh, honored by L.A. County for her, quote, bold and dauntless action to advance human relations. I don't know if you saw this, David. It was in the uh, L.A. Daily News. Uh, L.A. What County. What's her name again? This is Dolores Huerta. Yeah, I actually didn't see it in the L.A. Daily News, but I saw it on my Google alert that I have set up for uh, Dolores Huerta. Do you really have one? Yeah, of course you do. Yeah. Who else do you have in there? John Sutter, perhaps? Uh, you know what? We blew up Google on that. We you, <laughs> you personally took over the first, second, third, and fourth spot on Google.com for John Sutter. Hey, the other day I drove through uh, uh, Sutter County, and uh, can I tell you what a thrill it was? So um, anyway, here's the Dolores Huerta story. She, uh, Hilda Solis, uh, L.A. County supervisor, said, quote, Dolores is an inspiration that transcends generation after generation. She has dedicated her life to advancing the rights of farm workers, women and other marginalized communities. Never did I imagine as a young girl growing up in the San Gabriel Valley that I would get to meet her, let alone partner with her in uplifting our most vulnerable. So today... We come full circle. Well, as we come full circle, I would sure like to remind people that Dolores Huerta and the UFW are not what many people think they might be, people including uh, Hilda Solis. 
most of us acknowledge, I think, if you're a listener to this podcast, you probably um, understand that what the left always does with people like Cesar Chavez is hope to um, bask in the glow of their accomplishment. And because Chavez himself is dead, Huerta is not, as I say, she's 93. Um, but uh, they, they hope to kind of reflect in her glory or reflect it back on her. And the Democrats get a lot of mileage out of this sort of thing. But it's always about the myth of the UFW, about the Virgin of Guadalupe banners and migrant workers carrying the flags of Mexico and the United States. And, of course, the uh, famous Black Eagle of the UFW and marching with Catholic priests and Hollywood celebrities like Martin Sheen and Robert Blake, Emilio Estevez and Edward James Olmos. Uh, I mean, uh, Robert F. Kennedy, Jerry Brown, you, we could go on. But virtually everybody who was anybody marched with Chavez in the 50s and especially in the 50s, 60s and 70s. But I'd like to remind people that the UFW has been involved in some of the most notorious activities in California history. Um, far from honoring her, we might want to just acknowledge that catalog of, of uh, disquiet, let's say. Uh, it's a Kern County-based organization. The UFW is still. And if you know what, the, if you ever saw Grapes of Wrath, you know a little bit about what farm life might have been like for some people in the 1930s. But the UFW didn't have a whole lot to do with changing that necessarily. And certainly over time, the UFW got a lot worse. I offer you just three examples. Uh, in 1977, Cesar Chavez meets with a guy named Charles Diedrich. That guy is the founder of Synanon. Now, David, Synanon was huge when you were an infant. Do you remember the story, though, about these guys? They were a, a drug rehab uh, facility up in the Bay Area. Yeah, was that that long ago? Was that when I was an infant? Yeah, you're you're born in the mid-70s. What, 74, I think? 74, yeah. Yeah. So he meets Chavez does with the founder, Charles Diederich, in 77. And I'll just quote from Michael Yates, a former member who recounts their collaboration. Diedrich, he says, ran a drug rehab center called Synanon. He had concocted a psychological warfare scheme called The Game, in which addicts were subjected to relentless group attacks, the idea being to break down their psyche so they could start over again, this time without drugs. At the time of Chavez's fascination with Synanon and The Game, Diedrich's was already revealed to have been a megalomaniacal. Sorry about that. That is a hard word to say. Megalomaniacal. Maniacal. Megalomaniacal. He's a megalomaniac. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> He's a cult leader and who abused his clientele. A reporter had already exposed the organization and found a rattlesnake in his mailbox as a parting gift. Mm. So Cesar, the yeah. quote goes on, Cesar takes the game like Stalin takes to the game like Stalin to the secret police, and he used it for the same purpose to consolidate his power in the union. Now, this again, David, I just want to remind you, this guy, Michael Yates, is a he's an admirer of, of Chavez's and he worked in the UFW, but he really is frustrated by this activity. So he takes some of his trusted members, Chavez does, to the inner circle of Synanon for training, and it begins immediately to force the game upon his own staff at the UFW. In April of 77, he incites a screaming mob of game initiates to purge the union of troublemakers. All sorts of ridiculous charges are made up against the enemies of the union, including one of Yates's friends, a carpenter who did some work in the union's facilities. When the friend confronted Cesar and demanded to face his accusers in a hearing, as the union's constitution stated was his right, Chavez called the Mojave police and had the man arrested for trespassing. 
Yeah. Similarly, in 2006, we get an L.A. Times investigation, six-part series, I think, into Huerta and the UFW. That reveals that Huerta and her family used the UFW and multiple other entities to engineer lucrative deals for themselves. Workers were at best an afterthought, the Times concludes. Useful props in a marketing game of personal enrichment and power flying under the banner of social justice. Um, California Attorney General Bill Lockyer, prompted by the Times investigations, uh, launches his own investigation of the F UFW and uh, admits that many of the deals were suspicious, including one in which a UFW charity sold land to a company in which Huerta's son was the partner. That company paid $1.8 million to the charity and then turned around and sold the property immediately for $2.9 million, a profit of $1.1 bucks. Lockyer said, yeah, that, that looks suspicious, but it doesn't really break the state's laws on charitable trusts. But he recommended changes to avoid the appearance of impropriety in the future. The UFW had just endorsed Lockyer in his successful campaign for state treasurer. And I'll give you the most recent one. We've talked, Dan, uh, uh, we've talked, David, about Dan Grauen, the uh, Central Valley rancher up in Fresno County. He does a lot of fruit trees and almonds, that sort of thing. Um, well, Dan's uh, family has been farming in the Fresno area for three generations. Dan's the latest. And uh, his family farm was organized by the UFW in 1990, but the uh, UFW just sort of ghosted. They vanished. They disappeared and did not turn up again until 2013 when they kind of rapped on the doors of the workers and said, hey, pay up. You're part of the UFW and you owe us membership dues. Uh, the workers were so incensed that they gathered signatures for petition and persuaded the state to hold an election by which they could decertify the UFW. The UFW fought back, seeing which way the wind was blowing. They asked the State Agriculture Board, it's actually called the State Agricultural Labor Relations Board, to impound the ballots in a vault in the board's Sacramento HQ. And the ballots sat there for years until Grauen and his workers sued to have them counted. Finally, in 2018, after five years, the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court, affirmed a lower court's decision to count the ballots. Uh, the court said the board was apparently so zealous to punish the employer that it lost sight of the importance of the election itself and unnecessarily uh. disenfranchised those workers. So the Ag Board uh, opened its vault. They counted the votes. And sure enough, Grauen's employees had voted five years before five to one to decertify the UFW. So. Dolores Huerta and the union she helped found uses farm workers as props in a campaign of self-aggrandizement and revenue generation. The state's political establishment benefits from that association. And when they honor Dolores Huerta, David, I say they reward one of California's most notorious. They do far better to honor Dan Grauen or maybe the memory of what the L.A. Times used to mean to investigative reporting. But we will not forget, David. Well done. Wow. That was fantastic. Thanks, buddy. Um, I, I just I just find this so frustrating, you know, that we create these saints and then we pretend that somehow their endorsement of our activities allows us to do virtually anything. Speaking of the L.A. Times, um, I don't know. We'll, we'll get to the Times in just a second, David. I, I should have started with uh, Gavin Newsom. What do you think? Tells Politico that he's going off to South Carolina to uh, mm. bang the drum for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And he'll make a stop in uh, Vegas on his way home. And that um, guy's a team player, man. He's going out he to help. Truly is. Uh, how do you read this, David? Just, you know, well, look, more of the same. You, I don't know how many South Carolinians you know, but I very rarely have seen 
Democrats in South Carolina make up their mind on who they're going to vote for before a rich white governor from California comes out and pays a visit. <laughs> That's kind of what they're going for, is, a, is Gavin Newsom in South Carolina. Very popular figure. When you're driving in South Carolina and you come across uh, Gavin Newsom Highway, you, you realize that his political clout to help, out of the goodness of his heart, um, and you know he has the ability to do that, to go spend time on the campaign speech, on the campaign stump for Biden, uh, because everything's going so well in his state, and he's got a balanced budget, mm, he's running a right. surplus, <laughs> and crime is way down, homelessness is down, and that gives, him homelessness. The, that gives him the ability to go selflessly go into an area in which I think we all know he's a real big needle mover, and he has no agenda at all. None. Hey, did you happen to catch him on Bill Maher on Friday? Um, I did not. I oftentimes do end up getting Bill Maher clips. I like watching Bill Maher, but then if it doesn't sort of pop up in my feed or if something on YouTube or whatever, I don't usually see it because I don't go. I don't watch the whole show. It's. I'll, I'll tell you the truth. I, I I watch the show almost every Friday night with uh, two friends of mine who are not real political students. And I find it really difficult to listen to people who really don't know what's going on, argue on Bill Maher's show that they do know what's going on. Um, but he was on on Friday night, and I'll just tell you, it was terrible. I was ashamed of Bill Maher. It was, I think, all this really represented. In fact, Politico says something that confirms my suspicion. Um he, let's see, he says, uh, Newsom used to be a regular, this is from Politico, Newsom used to be a regular on Mars program, sometimes appearing twice in a single season. The comedian has been courting Newsom to return to the show, and the governor relented. I can tell you, it seems the governor relented with some ground rules, because running for president was totally off the table, and Bill Maher just put the softball on the tee and then directed Newsom to hit it. He opened up by saying, hey, look, things are really lousy in uh, San Francisco. Our housing regulations are a mess. We can't build enough housing in California. What are you doing? And he said, well, I've sued Huntington Beach. Mar moves yeah. on to the next question. Like, that's it? Really? That's that's fantastic, Governor. Well done. Um, well, but I think that if you sue Huntington Beach, you're going to get more houses in San Francisco. Mm. Yeah, you, you get the, the logic, yeah. Um, Mar did mention that one of his regular gimmicks, uh, anybody who watches the show may remember this, that for a couple of years, Mar was trying to install s rooftop solar at his massive home. And he kept a little cl a calendar on his desk for this little bit that he would do occasionally that would show how many days had passed since he begged the state and local authorities to please come out and permit this thing. All he needed to do was like plug a male into a female. And it was done. And I'm not talking sex. Um, get that smirk off your face. No, but I just, it's not a smirk. It is just the thought that there's a better way to say that. Yeah, sorry. All he had to do was plug it in. <clears throat> sorry about that, buddy. Um, but my point is, is that this was, you know, he, so Mar brings us up. Hey, you know, it's really difficult even to get solar up. The regulations around that were difficult. And Gavin Newsom smiles his seductive smile, kind of a bashful look and says, yeah. I saw I saw you doing that. And Mar chuckles nervously and they move on again. It was like watching the you know, Beaver are supposed to roll over and chew off their own testicles in a sign of submission. Mar mm. was chewing hard. Pardon that uh image. Mm. Um so anyway, yes, Gavin today. Newsom off to uh 
off to good old South Carolina to uh, tell South Carolinians how it's done, Democrat style. Um, David, big strike uh, last week at the LA Times. Things are tough over there. A report suggests the company is losing about a million dollars a month. Um, that's a pretty substantial number. Uh, the estimates range as high as $20 million or more per year to run the LA Times. They're losing right now. Uh, so the editor-in-chief is out. Two of his subordinates have followed him out the door. You know what, though? Why, all- is that so, why is it so much? That's I don't know. It doesn't seem like that much. Like, like, like the New York Times is really America's newspaper, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Just think about how much bigger the New York Times is than LA Times. So we're talking about a million a month. Losing LA- a million a month. Right. I know. But I mean, a million a month is like the New York Times' paperclip budget. <laughs> Well, remember that the guy who bought it is a biotech um, yeah. bazillionaire. The guy is very, very rich, but he doesn't. Yeah, but you, want- have a lot, you have a lot of rich people who buy newspapers and sure. then and then lose money and say, "What am I doing?" Right, I- and that's what's and that's what this guy's doing. Um, yeah, yeah. His his. Uh, let me see if I, I I always want to make sure I get this this chap's name right. Uh, you'll pardon me. It's uh, Sun Sheng, and. Um, as I say, he is a tech billionaire, a biotech billionaire. He's a doctor as well. Uh, but he he doesn't want to lose any more money. He's reached that point that, that you just described where he said, like, hey, enough is enough. And so he proposed 20% layoffs in the newsroom. And the editor quit. Two other editors went after him. And then the guild, as they call their union at the LA Times, their guild. I just love the kind of throwback to the Middle Ages the Guild staged a one-day walkout in multiple cities throughout California Friday and in Washington, D.C., following an announcement from management about those plans for significant layoffs. Um, it was the first newsroom uh, work stoppage for the time since it started printing in 1881. Uh, union leaders are pushing for demands. They want a public headcount on salary reductions. They want a town hall with the newsroom leadership, and they want a committee that includes union representatives in the search and selection of the next a- a- editor. But they have no answer, David, for the paper's financial problems. Huge surprise, right? Um, and and there's but you really- know what I gotta wonder, and I, again, I'm just trying to think through this the way like we would do it when we value a business. Is if I went out to start my own newspaper fresh, would I have to lose a million a month or twenty million a year? Um, without, I, I would suggest I wouldn't. And so, in other words, I I think that the brand of L.A. Times must have negative value. Well, that's that's one of the points that some critics make and that I might make. It's that, you know, the Times has become wildly progressive and there's I'll, I'll pop a story in the show notes for us here. But that is a complaint that the paper's owner, this guy, Sheng Shun, has allowed his 30 year old daughter, who is remarkably progressive, to basically issue ultimatums over social media to the paper's reporters and has, you know, excoriated them on social media for not being progressive enough. And when Hamas invades Israel on October 7th and murders 1,200 people, kidnaps over 200 more, and launches this massive, horrible war in Gaza, it's the publisher's daughter who is just constantly banging on the reporters that they're not being radically pro-Hamas enough uh, and so yeah. the Times coverage begins to slip. Now, keep in mind, who who reads newspapers, typically an older demographic? And when you're in L.A., 
that older demographic includes a lot of West Side people who are probably overrepresented by, let's say, the Jewish faith and who regard the Hamas attack as, at the very least, tragic and at the at at worst, yeah, I probably line up with you and me on this. That they, you know, these are terrorists who committed an evil act, and now they're being, and their people are being punished for it terribly. Um, so the Times coverage has slipped, and I would argue that they have really sliced themselves off what's really an alternative news weekly audience of progressive left people. Uh, there's just not a lot uh, there for conservatives anymore. Uh, I was told, for instance, about uh, four years ago, five years ago, no longer necessary for me to submit columns. Um, and it was clear you know, why that was. So um, I'll just say that uh, the other problems they have, of course, are just those problems that plague all newspapers, David. You know, they've got declining revenue because the Internet comes in and just guts advertising and subscribers. Labor costs continue to rise nonetheless. And any attempt to raise additional revenue by increasing the, the subscription rates or ad rates just accelerates the decline in both. Um just a few years ago, David, the Times had about 850,000 daily circulation. It is now down to about 125,000. That was the circulation of the alternative news weekly I ran in the 90s and early 2000s. Uh, it's just, it is a, sh a shadow of its former self. Um, terribly managed and uh, probably not financially, um, I, don't, I don't know how they're going to survive this one. I, ju I just don't. Well, there will be some other sucker uh, that will come do a vanity play. I mean, there's still some, you know, I don't know. It, it's pretty bizarre. But just remember, uh, someone out there bought Time magazine. You should go read that piece of crap these days. Somebody even bought Newsweek. Now, I would say go try going to Newsweek.com, but your browser will freeze up and the, <laughs> and the ads will come through the screen and grab your teeth out of your face. So, um, look, Newsweek time and u.s news and world report granted these were when we were kids weekly news magazines not daily newspapers but the people talk all the time about that movie theater that went away or the tv show that's off air they used to like if you want to talk about things that have gone downhill from the way they used to be newspapers and news magazines are exhibit a and b as far as i'm concerned yeah, it's uh, as a guy who was crunched by that uh, that rapid decline in the first decade of the 2000s, uh, I can tell you, it's a very difficult place to be. You have to make a lot of snap decisions and you have to make them right every time. Um, I think for a lot of us, it was just it was a very traumatic time. Lots of people always blamed ownership, ownership blamed greedy reporters. And in the end, it was a technology shift. It was uh, it was creative destruction. Speaking of strikes, David, there was a one-day strike yesterday. It was supposed to be five as Cal State University faculty um, walked out on their students uh, saying, admitting that their whole goal was, we're going to shut this campus system down. It's the largest public university system in the country. And, uh, and for one day, they succeeded. And then quickly, surprisingly, late last night announced they'd reached a deal after just one day of strikes. My first reaction was, oh, my gosh, um, the, the system caved. And it kind of did. But not so much. What the union accepted after one day of striking in the rain was the deal that was on offer over the weekend. Uh, and they announced this with uh, just tremendous happiness and pride. 
Uh, here's from the CSU union itself on their Instagram. It says, in case anyone forgot, strikes work. After months of negotiations and two strike actions, our movement for a better CSU has paid off. Uh, but their members, if you follow them, as I did on Twitter, not quite as happy. They accuse the union of having sold them out, of having lost them income, of not being aggressive enough or being too aggressive or just incompetent. Uh, David, this is the point at which, and we'll come back to this in just a moment, where I begin to wonder whether we can just trust government with schools anymore. Uh, the deals now, that is, were... T- is that right? You're beginning to wonder that, huh? I'm sorry. No, I'm not beginning. No, but are you but I'm, serious? I'm are saying, you really, is this like a thing you're struggling with? Well, struggling with, it's it's been nagging me for years, and it just becomes clear to me that so well, many of the you problems... you can't trust them. You can't trust them. I agree. They should not be responsible for education of children. What's the proper role, if any, for government in public education? Well, I happen to not believe there is one, but I accept that that is not going to be the predominant view in my lifetime. And I'm an incrementalist. I'm not a radical and I'm not a revolutionary. And I do not believe that the ideal state, when a transition to it, will create a great deal of pain for others should be implemented immediately. So I believe that the right thing to do is to allow for the gradualism of market forces to see the state's role in the education of our children diminished over time naturally and organically. And how do you do that? Competition. So ultimately, a better product, it costs $23,000 a year in the state of California to educate a kid in the public school system. That is more than we charge at Pacifica Christian High School in Newport Beach, California, arguably the wealthiest city in America. And we do not charge that for tuition. Now, I ask you, Will, do you think we could charge more than that in Newport Beach, California? <laughs> the answer because we could. The question answers itself. And yet we are able to educate children for an amount smaller than what they are paying to educate kids throughout the entire state school system. Now, people say that's not anything to do with the government's role, which is what you asked. That just means they're doing it badly. And that's fine. A lot of people have to learn the hard way over, I think, a couple of generations more that, in fact, they can't do it well because they lack the legitimacy. They are um, ideologically inclined and conflicted. And even if there was going to be a role, anything other than a hyper subsidiarity around localism, local superintendents disconnected from the corrupting influences and control of unions. But um, at that point with hyper-localism in public schools, you wouldn't need them either because there would end up being alternatives uh, that would meet different parts of the market in the private sector, day schools, home schools, co-ops, so charters and other things like that, you just need competition over time. It's always the case that the state, if you want to, um, it's so hard to ever get rid of a state program. But the only way it's ever been done in history is to take away its customers. Yes, which is uh, what we're up to. Uh, you know, one of the challenges, David, you mentioned it, is that there is such culture conflict inside the public schools, in part because they're trying to appeal to everybody and therefore appeal really or satisfy almost nobody. Uh, 
Um, and that, you know, I'm, I'm speaking very broadly when I say they satisfy nobody. Clearly, a bunch of people are just totally fine with whatever, you know, whatever government cheese the school hands out uh, as, in, as education. But, but Will, can religion, I make a point? Can I make a point that's going to upset a lot of people on our side and then is going to be uh, is going to please about like 11 people that already like me? We fool ourselves on the right all the time by believing that where things went astray, that it was a wonderful system. And then the unions got too big sometime in the late 90s. And then they start spending money poorly and union bosses get paid too much. And they started giving immunity to teachers who were accused of crimes and these other really scandalous things happen. There's no question all that stuff put the problem into light speed. And it is exponentially worse in the last 25 years than it was in the first 25 years. But no, that is not where it started. It started with the secular humanism that our state school system is dependent upon. Thomas Dewey and these other um, degenerates of thinkers rooted in a statism and uh, I, I say Thomas Dewey, <laughs> but you know, you know what I mean. I think mm -hmm. that the that the fundamental philosophy of early twentieth century progressivism and secular humanism, and by the way, the myth of neutrality, which now we laugh about and say, how dare they pretend to be neutral when they're so progressive and they're so ideological? But see, the problem with it too was the myth of neutrality was always intended to be a way to take God out of education, to take values out of education, and to present a messianic view of the state to third graders. But they used to do it with a lot more charm and charisma, and they also used to not forget to teach reading and writing while they went about a more subtle indoctrination. But if you read a book that I read as a young guy that was written a long time ago called Christianity, Education, and the State by uh, the late intellectual Gretchen Machen, um, this stuff is not new. This is not new. And I agree it's worse than ever. And I agree the unions have made it more corrupt than ever. And I agree that there are things we could do to make it a lot better because I don't think it's going away immediately. So I repeat the fact that I'm not trying to be revolutionary here. But I don't want it off the record that my fundamental belief is it is structurally flawed because the duty of education of the children is with the parents and their partnerships, just like all these other elements, civil society, um, the mediating institutions, when we freely assemble for church, when we uh, have civic associations, causes, when you talk about the ideology you want your kids raised with, Parents should be responsible for that. And the state is not a participant in that process. Yeah, the original sin, if you will pardon me, is goes all the way back to the founding of the Department of Education in California in the 1850s. And, you know, I've talked about this in the show before, that one of its very first superintendents of public instruction was a guy named Jonathan Sweat, who famously said that parents have absolutely no role in educating their children. They're, they're, they, they are outside the schoolhouse. And teachers would no more come into your kitchen and tell you how to cook than you should come into the classroom and tell them what to teach. Uh, that once you become 18, you are a, you are a subject of the state. And that is their job is to make you an obedient subject of the state. It comes right out of Hegel, you know, and this is in the 1850s and 60s. It's not a long 
a stride from uh, Hegel's dialectic and its ideas of, you know, the state as the ultimate goal, the teleology. Well, that's uh, right. It was Hegelian. And, and of course, I think, you know, I was referring to John Dewey, not Thomas Dewey, but yes. the but 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 it's exactly what John Dewey was so influenced by and what scaled this commitment to the public school system in the earlier part of the 20th century. And so the roots you refer to from uh, the 1850s, you know, ideas have consequences, my friend. Yeah, you know, and e the clash of values, I think, among Americans, not that that's anything new. I mean, this is it's been ever thus, you know, we're, we're humans and we struggle over issues of faith and ethics and morality. And, you know, one family is not precisely like another. We have our own little uh, subordinate governments inside our homes and trying to reconcile all those with a kind of bland diet at the schoolhouse just doesn't work. And I'll give you an example of that. Just last week. Uh, here in uh, Orange County, the uh, Capistrano Unified School District announced that there would be a Satan club, a Satanist club on an elementary school campus in uh, San Clemente. Um, this is from Kira Davis, friend of the show on Substack. She writes, the club is sponsored by the Satanic Temple, which says its only interest in opening such clubs is to counter the pernicious influence of more conventional religious clubs on school campuses. Religious clubs that use threats of specifically the, the the temple, the satanic temple says their target is religious clubs that use threats of eternal damnation to convert school children to their belief system. Now, David, this is an attack openly. They they admit this group does that it's really just anti-Christian. They're not really satanic. They say they don't devil worship. They just hope that by popping a club like this onto a campus. The parents will become outraged, and the school district officials will have to say, you know what, no more religious clubs on campus of any kind. Because what is the government doing picking, you know, Christians over sat Satanists or Jews over uh, Wiccans? Um, that's not the government's role, right? So allowing these clubs to exist on campus will become a flashpoint because the schools can't they can't comprehend, they can't encompass moral values like that. They can't treat them with any kind of nuance or distinction. Yeah, I'm with you 100%, my friend. Uh, in other uh, small news of the weird, David, I sent you a story. In-N-Out Burger in Oakland to close its doors for good over out-of-control crime, the company yeah. says. Uh, that's a story here uh, from, oh gosh, where was this? I think it was in was the- Was the crime their french fries? <laughs> you don't like their french fries i don't i'm such a big fan of their burgers but i've never liked their fries who has the best fries well you know i'm a, I'm a mcdonald's guy actually yeah they are good i agree yeah. with you salty not and I, crispy not that i can even remember the days when i ate mcdonald's fries i've yeah, had it's... no fast food since january 1 my friend it's not uh wow. it's not been fun no dessert a... nothing wow. good you're kind of a sober uh, january or is this going to last all year well, you know, I've been sober for eleven years, but this, uh, but if you, this is much harder. Okay, yeah, can imagine. <laughs> I'd far rather have uh, French fries than Jack and Coke. I assure you. I should have seen that coming. We almost had a, a keyboard disaster and a microphone malfunction with coffee. That was um, I, that wasn't even a joke. I don't. Even, that was so. So here's here's what's going on in Oakland. Um, you know, the company just says, despite taking repeated steps to create safer conditions, our customers and associates are regularly victimized by car break-ins, property damage, theft, and armed robberies. 
the company wrote. Additionally, this location remains a busy and profitable one for us, but our top priority must be the safety and well-being of customers and associates. We cannot ask them to visit or work in an unsafe environment. Uh, the, the response on Twitter and Instagram was swift from the left, calling it racist and saying this is, you know, this is why capitalism must be brought down because business people say they're there for the community, but leave when it becomes too difficult for them. Um, I don't know. Maybe you arm all in and out burger workers uh, with Kalashnikovs or something. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what they would recommend. But this is just, you know, one more of those uh, tales of the the dooms the doom cycle in the Bay Area. It won't uh, be the last. It will not be the last. I hate to say. No, and I, I, I honestly struggle with this every week, David. When I send you uh, my monstrous catalog of stories I'd like to cover, I have already by then usually thrown out the In-N-Out Burger stories, you know, things like this. But um, sometimes they just, I just feel like we need the reminder, at least I do. Hey, Steve Garvey, uh, former Dodger great, is running for uh, Senate. You knew that, for the U.S. Senate. And Jim Newton, writing in Cal Matters, says um, he can't really understand why Garvey would run because he's not going to win but you know who really is happy about garvey entering the race is adam schiff who of course has two democrats that he has to contend with katie porter and barbara lee and running for the u.s senate schiff is way ahead of both um but garvey is now fighting porter for second place and of course in california's uh jungle primary that means that schiff would face not porter a uh, a fairly prominent uh progressive from his left but garvey uh, a person who is, you know, was a Dodger great so many millennia ago that most Californians won't recognize it, would never vote for a Republican even if they did. Um, so he figures Schiff does, or rather Newsom, Newton does, the, the reporter here, thinks that Schiff is really exhilarated by this outcome because it means that he'll face a very weak Republican in Steve Garvey in the general election. So first... Or, or March, no, 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 no. Or face any Republican. Yes, that's fair. There's no need to modify it with very weak. Any Republican, the Democrat beats by 30 points, 20 points. And so this is actually brilliant. But my only question is this. Tell me where I'm wrong politically, because I don't know the answer. If the Democrat who would be coming in second place, and in this scenario could come in third, is so weak that they could lose to the Republican in the jungle primary then aren't they so weak they have no chance in the general anyways? So does it no. really matter? I, think, I, I, I don't understand I, how we think a Democrat who could lose to Garvey in the battle for second place could be viable against Schiff in the general anyways. Well, keep in mind, um, check me on this, but here's here's the logic that there are just as many registered Democrats as Republicans um, or it's it's fairly close anyway. Independents are a large kind of third component of that. Democrats are going to be splitting their votes among three Democrats, Lee, Schiff, Porter, whereas Republicans, if they kind of, you know, just pull the lever for somebody with an R next to his name, they're going to go for Garvey. So you right. immediately. So the Democrats right. are splitting up all their votes. But that, that, but that hasn't is, affected that. It hasn't changed the fact that in the past we've still ended up with two Democrats because. Right, like with Viragosa and um, and Newsom. Oh, that was governor. What was the last I, I, Senate race? No, I, 
I take your point that if you take anything below the level of governor, you're often ending up with two statewide candidates who are both Democrats, you know, secretary of state, AG, insurance commissioner. Yeah. And, and so my point is on a relative basis compared to the testimony of more recent history here, it would seem that if you don't end up with Democrat on Democrat race, it just means that second Democrat or third place person is uniquely weak, not yeah. just mathematically weak from the same mathematical challenge you described that always applies. Yeah. I think what they're saying here, what people are, you know, certainly what Newton is saying and what I would suggest is that Garvey does have something that most of those other Republicans doesn't. That's some name ID among older Californians. You know, the, people like you who pay attention to sports and sports history, people like me who grew up with Steve Garvey on first base out at uh, Chavez regime to uh, let's see how many times we can play that bingo card name. And so I think, you know, this is where you get a problem for the Dems that you have Porter coming in at about 21%. Well, that's right about where Garvey is right now with, you know, among voters. So it's not that Porter is weak so much as that she's competing against a guy with very high name recognition on the right and a guy in Adam Schiff and Barbara Lee to her left, Schiff to her right. So she's she's in a problematic state. But um, I think Newton points out that, you know, nobody can get Garvey to say anything about why he's running like he just says you know i'll deal with homelessness i'll fix it uh, all the crime i'll take care of it trump i got no comment um it's not there it's not really a pointy campaign it's almost as if they're just saying just survive get into the general and then we'll win uh, but so far no plans are forthcoming from steve garvey's campaign Hey, can we talk about sports as long as we're talking about sports here, David? I just want to run two things by you. I know we only have short time, so I won't make these long stories, but Stanford women's basketball coach, head coach, that is, Tara Vanderveer, made history on Sunday when she earned her 1,203rd career victory. That makes her the winningest basketball coach in NC2A history, surpassing legendary Duke men's head coach, Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski. Krzyzewski. I can never say the guy's name correctly. Sorry about that, David. That must really well, uh, That's okay. I never heard the name Tara Van Dierver before either. <laughs> <laughs> I, I screwed up both names. Coach K uh, and uh, Van Der Veer. There we go. Tara Van Der Veer. I think you probably so, said it right. I just okay. never heard it before. So what do you think? Uh, big I moments. Think I think it's offensive to compare her record to Coach K. That's because? Okay. I don't want to answer that. <laughs> come on it's just you and me here you're safe but it isn't and 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 also there's no need to answer because everyone already knows why so it sounds like a great accomplishment for her it is obviously it's a lot of wins done well she's been a great women's basketball coach you so that's awesome you know but yeah okay well pound your hoof twice for yes once for no it's I comparing think apples to um uh, diesel engines. I don't get the analogy. Yeah. Um, it, but look, I'm not saying anything negative about her. It seems great. Her team is excited. It's a lot of wins. Uh, you know, it's just, um, it's not the same. It's just it not the same. Yeah. But it also isn't that, that, that doesn't need to be said. Everybody. Oh, sorry. Knows. Can we just so pretend why, I didn't that, say what it? What I'm trying, what I'm, yeah, no, I'm not talking to you. I'm saying it everybody knows it isn't the same yeah the copywriter at espn who said like okay well now on the mount rushmore you got coach k and then you got and you have tara and then you have you know dean smith it's like no 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 yeah okay yeah all right well let's just we'll just do this thing 
Okay, do you have a dog in the fight on Sunday when California's own San Francisco 49ers take on the Detroit Lions? Um, Yeah, obviously uh, I'd be rooting for Detroit. I would never root for San Francisco (laughs) sports team for anything, ever, under any circumstances. Wow, really? Ever. See, I'm the guy who says the team from my division that beat my team, I want them to go. Yeah, there is something deeply wrong in your life with that. Thing. I understand. Yeah, I, I, I can understand. But, you know, I, I admire the 49ers. I love strong California football. I would prefer to watch a USC game than 10 NFL games. Um, any 10. But uh, but there it is. All right. Um Let's see. Let's move on here. Uh, 49ers, 49ers. Here we go. Uh, David, if you, were you in West, I- if you were in West Germany after World War II, would you have been rooting for East Germany? Just wondering how far you take this nonsense. <laughs> well, the Russians beat us in the Third World War, so I hope they beat the, uh, the Martians in the interplanetary cosmic war. Um, AB5 goes national, David, and uh, the Wall Street Journal points out, uh, I've got a piece coming out in National Review, I think over the weekend, coming up, uh, the Biden administration issued a new rule late last week intending to put more contractors on company payrolls. That's a change that could reverberate across a range of industries, including healthcare, restaurants, construction, and transportation, the journal writes. Uh, the rule goes into effect in 20, I'm sorry, in March. And uh, it is built atop uh, AB5, Assembly Bill 5, which we have talked about at great length, a um, a stupid rule, a stupid law, rather, that um, has really damaged the California economy, but was Gavin Newsom's gift to uh, unions, and particularly to Lorena Gonzalez, who came in to the Assembly in 2013 as a member of the Teamsters and returned to that union once her job was done, uh, helping shut down independent contracting. The goal here is always to shut down independent contractors by forcing them into employment agreements with companies Companies that are, of course, more easily unionized. Um, There are massive companies that love this move in California. They will love it nationwide because it will shut down a chief, um, you know, kind of a free radical in their marketplace. It'll take some of the market share away from these independent contractors and force them to go to work for the larger companies. So it increases corporate concentration. Um, It increases, ultimately, government control because you'll have unions uh, trying to unionize those workplaces if, in fact, they're not already unionized. David, it, it strikes me, I don't want to use this term hyperbolically, but it really does strike me. I mean, what do you think of when you think of government kind of uh, controlling corporations and controlling the workers in those corporations? I don't know. I think fascism or some other form of authoritarianism, it just strikes me as really horrific and kind of terrifying. Well, I most certainly agree in the fact that this is, you know, federally administered and and so forth. I mean, it's really um, authoritarian. And I think that there's an awful lot of things uh, happening throughout the society that are that rhyme with this. You know, they're all symptomatic of the same thing, which is uh, the slow march towards a larger government that is perfectly correlated with the decline of self-governance. Yeah, I um, I am struggling with this one. I uh, we 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 fought at California Policy Center. We fought AB five as much as we could. It passed, of course. It just unleashed terror and chaos in the courts and in the economy, the supply chain. Um, this is a lesson, you know. I think uh, to those. I, 
I was reading the comments, and I should, never should, in one of my National Review articles a couple of weeks ago, and somebody said, why does anybody care about California? It's a basket case. Leave it alone. This is why you care. The person, I would just point out this one thing that is you know, missing from a lot of stories. The person who was in charge of implementing AB5 when it passed, uh, when Gavin Newsom passed it in 2019, and it went into effect in 2020, was Department of Labor Secretary for California, Julie Sue. Who is the Biden Secretary of Labor? Well, acting deputy or acting secretary, Julie Su. Uh, what is the new Biden administration Department of Labor rule? It is a reflection of AB5. Uh, so these things don't stay in California, though they are founded here. Um, let's talk about uh, this other fun headline, David. Judge, this is from the LA Times. Judge bans home upgrades in Beverly Hills without housing plan. Um, so here's here's the story. The LA Times is reporting that. Uh, L.A. County Superior Court Judge Curtis Kinn has blocked the city from issuing all building permits except for new residential development in Beverly Hills because that city failed to approve a sufficient blueprint for affordable housing to the state. Under state law, they have to plan to build 3,100 homes. Uh, the city has failed to do that. So the judge said, hey, look, I'm going to enact. I'm going to tr that triggers the Bonta rule. Uh, and that refers to a decision uh, out here in San Bernardino in which uh, the in which Bonta stepped in to uh, mediate a conflict between the city and the state and said, look, you guys agree to build some of these places and we won't sue the hell out of you. Uh, but otherwise, we're going to let the judge shut you down, all building, any kinds of improvements, anything else. You will not be able to proceed until you meet our housing mandate. David, is this a good answer to the problem that uh, Newsom dodged on the Bill Maher show when they discussed the problems of building homes in California? Yeah, it is not a good answer. It's uh, it's frightening, and it's just very important, very, very important to remember that statism is not always constrained to the federal level. Yeah, I, I, I wonder about your thought about this, David. Thomas White, chairman of the Municipal League, told the Times, the Municipal League is a 60-year-old civic organization in L.A., um, he says of Beverly Hills, we have intentionally created a desirable environment by deliberately avoiding overdevelopment and overdensification. In other words, he's saying, look, we just built this city and we like it this way. And why are you coming here to tell us that we have to build more housing to accommodate people who we we don't need to accommodate? Let them let them live someplace else. There's lots of land. What do you make of that, David? I, you you can guess exactly what I make of it, and and I, <laughs> but I again I just I just don't understand why people put up with this. I really don't. Well, David, um, we it's could NIMBY, go on. It's, it's classic NIMBYism. The reason they put up with it. I mean, the article talks about population of Beverly Hills is the same today as it was in 1970, even as the population of California has doubled, and and. Um, Newport Beach is very similar. I make the joke a lot that Newport is capable of voting like Reagan Republicans, but then when it comes to property, they're capable of becoming Santa Monica Democrats. You, you just let me just make this as non-policy granular as possible. The way to deal with a shortfall of housing is to change the entire mentality of people that it is their birthright to have a housing policy and individual housing decisions made around whatever is best for them at their stage of life. That's just not the way this works, nor is it the way it's supposed to work in a free society. You need to build more housing. Will, can I share two data points with you before I shut up? 
Please, yeah, of course. Do you know what the average age of a first-time home buyer was in 1980 when I was in first grade? Maybe I do second not. Grade, maybe second grade by then. It was uh, 29 years old. Was the average age across the United States of America? You know what it is today? Mm. It's 36 years old. Mm. This is not a good sign. But here's some really fascinating follow-up stat. The average age of a non-first-time home buyer. So in other words, every home purchased that wasn't the person buying its first-time home. So it could have been a second-time home. It could have been an eighth home. I mean, I think over, I'm sure, I don't even know how many homes I've owned over the years. You know, many people throughout their life might own six, seven, eight homes, you know. Um, any home that wasn't a first-time home purchase, the average age in 1980 was 36. The first time was 29. The average age now of any non-first-time home buyer is 58 years old. Good Lord. Wow. And I think that there is a lot of generational stuff going on there and the fact that people much older generally just don't stay in the homes that they raise their kids in as often anymore and whatnot. Some of these things could be fine developments. There's, you know, and some, like it isn't, it, it, the general point I make is that the age on a median basis has been pulled higher by the lack of age of people on a younger basis. Policies like this, interventions like this, regulations, and the attitude of nimbyism that's why homes are so expensive for younger people, and it is a totally avoidable economic catastrophe. This one, more than almost anything else, I don't want to say it isn't a policy error. It's a cultural error that deeply relies on bad policy to implement it. But the bad policy follows the cultural errancy here. It doesn't create it. Well said, David. Um, as long as we were speaking about Rob Bonta, I wonder if we can, um, if you'll allow me, please. I'd like to slip in a little interview here I did with uh, Jacob Hubert. That's, he's the attorney for the Chicago-based Liberty Justice Center. And Jacob is leading the fight against uh, Rob Bonta's uh, and Bonta's department's attack on local school districts that have decided for parent notification. That's the policy of letting parents know when their kids decide that they're going to gender transition. And of course, the teachers union and Bonta say parents are too dangerous to be trusted with that. I would direct them to news in today's uh, newspapers that L.A. Unified School District has once again settled with victims of sexual assault in one of their schools. Uh, Multi-million dollar settlement. And, um, you know, just more evidence that this stuff about parents being the, 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 the really obvious danger to children is just almost every week it seems refuted by the evidence of what goes on in our schools so david if you don't mind i'll just uh, ask sarah to queue up our interview with uh, jacob hubert all right with me now is jacob hubert president of the liberty justice center friend i'll say ally or counterpart or uh, colleague uh, jacob welcome to radio free california well thanks for having me back Always a pleasure. Uh, why don't you uh, describe for listeners who didn't have the pleasure of your previous appearance, uh, why don't you describe for us how you got to be president of Liberty Justice Center? Um, what were what were some of the milestones along the way? Because you're in a, you're a Chicago-based organization, but you're involved quite often in cases that are outside of Illinois. Although I'll just venture to say that among your most famous would be a little case out of Illinois. Um, why don't you tell us about yourself first, please? 
Sure. So uh, I joined the Liberty Justice Center as soon as it was founded in Chicago in 2011. And at that time, we were focused on the problems of our home state of Illinois, of which there were and are many, uh, suing the state government, suing the city of Chicago, suing other local governments to stand up for people's uh, right to free speech, their right to pursue an honest living, uh, their right to use their property as they see fit. And uh, and so for years, we were focused primarily on that. But then eventually, as you say, we had a great case arise out of Illinois, and that's the case of Janice versus AFSCME, where we represented a state worker who objected to being forced to pay union fees as a condition of keeping his job. And that case ended up going all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court declared that that was unconstitutional. It violates workers' First Amendment right to choose what political groups they will and won't support with their money. And since then, we've expanded our efforts to fight for liberty in courts all across the country, uh, not only in Illinois, but also in California and all over the place. And now we have attorneys all over the place uh, doing this work uh, as of next week, or up to 11 attorneys across the country uh, fighting for liberty in the courts. Uh, 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 actually, our headquarters has recently um, updated. We're now based out of Austin, Texas, although we maintain our office in Chicago for now. Uh, and uh, yeah, and so we, we always are looking for the latest and greatest threats to liberty that we can take on in the courts, always representing our clients free of charge, of course, because we are a nonprofit public interest organization. Well, one of your um, one of my favorite cases is the one you're doing um, uh, that, that we had a hand in, and that is the case involving uh, Attorney General Rob Bonta's suit on behalf of the state of California against the school board in Temecula. I'm sorry, Chino Valley. Uh, Chino Valley Unified. And Chino Valley uh, had the temerity to be the first local school district in California that uh, created a policy that uh, we help shape. And that's a policy that says uh, to uh, basically all education staff in a school in a school that um, parents must be notified if the child asks for any kind of use of different pronouns, a different locker room than the one associated with his uh, locker room at birth, you might say. And um, this quickly got the attention of progressives and teachers union activists who declared that this was anti-trans. Our argument was, no, it's pro-family and therefore pro-trans, uh, you know, to, to the extent that we're even take a have a side on that fight. It's just that we're, we're for parents, really, to make these kinds of critical decisions. Um so I wonder, you took that case on, you uh, have already appeared, I guess, in court, and maybe you can just give us the update. Where are we now? Where does the case look like it's headed? Yeah, so the Attorney General, Rob Bonta, sued the Chino Valley School District back at the beginning of the school year to block this parental notification policy. Uh, and uh, we uh, he sought an injunction to, uh, to keep it uh, blocked while this litigation proceeds. And unfortunately, the judge in that case, a California state trial court judge, did block the policy in large part uh, after a hearing. Now, it's still a little unclear uh, what the scope of that order is, the extent to which that is blocked. That's something that we're still working out with the courts 
but it, it looks like uh, we're going to have to, as expected, you know, obviously whoever loses in the trial court on this is going to go to the California Court of Appeals, is going to go to the California Supreme Court if necessary. Uh, and so we're still at the very beginning stages of this uh, issue that is very likely going to have to be resolved by the higher courts in California. And that's going to take some more months to play out. Always the issue of parental authority, which school districts uh, admire so much in virtually every other contract. Your kid wants to play uh, football. You got to sign a form. They want to go on a field trip. They want to watch a movie at school. You got to have a you got to have an agreement from the parent. A little sign up slip. Uh, I have you know frequently said my daughter loved to show up at school, claim that she had a headache, get out of class, and then go help the nurse by asking first for an aspirin. The nurse would dutifully call and say, "Can your daughter have an aspirin?" But your child wants to change his or her pronouns, change their physicality, their physiology, rather. Um, no, no, no. That's that's too dangerous for a parent to chime in on because parents are dangerous. Um, they never come out and say that specifically. Oh, uh, I shouldn't say never. Sometimes do. The parents are a, a threat to their own child's uh, you know, survival, in fact. Why is that not a federal issue? Well, it could be a federal issue. And in fact, there have been some parents who have tried to make this a federal issue, rightly claiming that there is a federal constitutional right under the 14th Amendment to direct the upbringing of your own children. And they're right about that. They should win on that theory, too. Now, Bonta's case is under state law. He claims that uh, this parental notification policy violates the California Constitution and California law, he says it violates the constitutional right to privacy to tell the parents what's going on with the child at school. He claims it's unconstitutional and illegal discrimination somehow to tell parents uh, what's going on with the child at school when they are trying to change their gender or the way that people uh, identify them. And that makes no sense, as we're pointing out to the courts, but that's what he's arguing. And so uh, it's a question of state law in the attorney general's lawsuit. I don't mean to get too into the weeds, but whether he does or doesn't believe this is, you know, really that, that, that state law prevails here. Why would we walk into court and argue? Yeah, you're right. State court is really the important, the, the right venue for this. It just seems to me that the easier bet here, tactically, is federal court. Even you know the Ninth Circuit today is not what it was a few years ago. It's not quite as insane. Uh, and even if it were, this is an issue on which I just think federal law is quite clear. Even state law is quite clear on this. There are all kinds of laws in California regulation already that say things like you you can't talk to kids about their family's politics, religion, or anything else. And yet what Bont is arguing is that it's explicitly those kinds of things, a parent's politics, a parent's uh, psychological profile, a parent's religious orientation. All of these things are super critical to understanding a child's danger when they decide to announce that they are, in fact, uh, transitioning. Yeah, well, I agree that federal court is a good place to attack this, a good place for parents to go and attack this. But of course, the school is the school and it can't, uh, you know, assert parents federal constitutional rights in defending against this. But parents can step in and do that. Uh, some have in this case, some have intervened in this case to raise that issue. And I won't be surprised if other parents would end up suing directly in federal court to uh, present that federal issue. And of course, parents' federal constitutional rights should take priority over any state constitutional law arguments 
But at the same time, Bont is wrong about the state constitution too. <laughs> okay, so if I gather correctly, it's your your pri- your prognosis here is this will, and I think the judge even said something in in your hearing, uh, something like, I, "I know that either one of you, you know, whoever loses is going to appeal." And everybody sort of nodded sagely. So he sort of sees himself as, I think, kind of checked out. Like, I'm just going to do whatever the heck I want because you're going to appeal anyway. Um, I'm not going to ascribe that to the judge. I don't know that he's no. checked out. I think I think the judge has been thoughtful, if not entirely correct, about these issues. Oh, you are so good. If the judge ever hears these words, we'll make sure to underscore yours, not mine. So... Um, are you, are you seeing this like the, the, the thing that's fascinating to me is that the California Teachers Association and all of its myriad affiliates have been putting out massive amounts of documents, each one of which asserts that to tell parents about their child's desire to transition puts the child in harm's way um, and lies on a faulty claim that parents have authority over their children. Can you, are you familiar at all with sort of the foundations of parental authority? Like, it just seems like a thing that we would not, if they even asked just a few years ago, that, you know, I think most Americans today, if you ask them, our parents in charge of their kids would say, absolutely. Uh, that's our starting point. Where where does the counter argument begin? Uh, you know, my own research suggests, for example, if you want to go back to uh, the ye olden times, you can find this in ancient religions. You know, you find this in Judaism and Hinduism, Christianity, Islam, uh, all the major religions, and then religions that most of us haven't heard about before. You know, whether it's uh, the, the the religions of ancient Babylonia or Persia. The idea that parents are not in charge of their children, that parents don't have some ultimate authority of their children would be shocking. Where do you begin the argument, if if at all, if you even have to? Like, what's the what's the pedigree of parental authority, would you say? Well, as you say, I mean, parental rights are as old as civilization itself. We always have assumed that parents are generally going to act in the best interest of their children and that they have authority over their children's upbringing. And in our legal history, the Supreme Court long ago recognized that parents have a right to direct their children's upbringing and education. It is a case called Pierce versus Society of Sisters, where a state wanted to tell uh, parents that they couldn't choose private education at all for their children. They had to send them to public schools. They couldn't send them to Catholic schools to be educated uh, in their own faith at the same time that they're being educated about other things. And the Supreme Court said that's wrong. It's part of our, it's a, you know, an established part of our history and tradition that parents uh, have that fundamental right to direct their children's upbringing. And so what Bonta is arguing in this lawsuit just turns that assumption that uh, we've always had, the rule that we've always had on its head, where we seem to assume that all parents are a danger to their children, that all parents, if they learned out about what's going on with their kids, would abuse them, would do something bad to them, and therefore we're going to keep information from them in the first place because we have to, to keep children safe. Well, that's that's just the exact opposite of how it's always worked and how it works under the law otherwise. You know, generally, if we think that parents are abusing or are about to abuse their children, well, then the government has to go to court through established procedures to present 
evidence of that to uh, protect the children. Uh, and, and you need really good evidence uh, to interfere in that relationship. Uh, but here, we just have a blanket rule that assumes the worst of all parents. And, and, and then that's just the rule. Parents can't know. And uh, that's, it, it's, uh, it's a total uh, inversion of the way things have always worked, uh, not only in this country, but even before the establishment of this country. I wonder if yeah, you, you and I haven't talked a lot about this, but there's a simultaneously a federal case in Escondido, the school district down there, which is in San Diego County, right next door. Uh, a federal judge, Roger Benitez, a George W. Bush appointee, if I remember correctly, said that the idea that teachers should hide child sexuality issues from parents creates, he called it a trifecta of harms. I thought it was a particularly uh, lovely phrase. And the, the three harms are, of course, it it hurts the teachers to lie. It's very, very bad for them. It's not right. It's immoral to ask somebody to lie. I love the uh, um, the, the the great, uh, oh gosh, suddenly brain slipping here. Um, the, just the, the notion that, you know, lying to people is the first, it's a slippery slope for a democratic civilization demanding that people lie. But um, Solzhenitsyn, sorry, live not by lies. There we go. It was lurking around in the ancient brain pan somewhere. So, um, you know, he says, first of all, that requiring teachers to lie to parents as a matter of policy is just duplicitous, immoral. It, it harms the teacher-child relationship. Second, it harms the child, of course, because the child needs his parents or her parents to be involved in these kinds of life-changing, life-altering decisions. And we have understand that in every other context. Kids aren't allowed to smoke. They're not allowed to drink. They're not allowed to, you know... Uh, drive a car until they're 16 at least and can't join the military and vote until they're 18. We understand these kinds of limits because, you know, the, the left loves to argue that children should never ever be a tried as an adult in having committed a crime because they're not yet fully formed. They don't have moral agency. But boy, as soon as it comes to changing for life, their gender identity, uh, they're fully competent to make this decision. So, um, Benitez continued that, you know, that the parents are, of course, harmed because it undermines their authority over the child. And that leads to, you know, real distrust between parents and children. What do you make of that case? Because it really does seem identical to the case in Chino Valley in some respects. You know, what's the what really is the origin of parental authority? Is it in the state as Bonta would have it or is it in those people we call the parents? Um, does that case have any bearing at all on on your case in Chino Valley, or is it just wholly separate because it's in a federal court? Well, it's a little different. It's a great decision, uh, and in that in that one, you had teachers suing where their school policy was that they couldn't tell the parents, and they said, "Well, that violates our right to free speech, and it violates our right to free exercise of religion because it violates our religious principles to uh, effectively lie to parents." And the judge didn't rule on the free speech part. He put that to the side, but he did rule on the free exercise of religion part. And there, the court has to analyze what the uh, uh, what the plaintiffs are saying about their uh, ability to exercise their religious beliefs and consider the uh, state's interests on the other hand and consider both of those things. And the state, in defending itself there, said, well, we have to do this because these students have a right to privacy under the state constitution, and we need to do that to protect their right to privacy. And the judge said, that doesn't make any sense. 
that students would have a right to privacy against their parents with respect to what they're doing in front of everybody else at school. Uh, and so that argument is just nonsense. So the state hasn't presented anything here to uh, to justify what it's doing effectively. And therefore, the teacher's religious beliefs should prevail. And that's relevant to Chino Valley because there the attorney general is saying, no, no, we have to uh, uh, block this policy because if we didn't, that would violate the student's right to privacy. Well, as the judge in that other case said, that's just nonsense. It makes no sense to say that children have a right to privacy against their parents uh, with respect to what they're doing in front of everybody else at school. And of course, children don't have much of a right to privacy against their parents at all because their parents run their lives until they're adults and live somewhere else. They see everything they do at home and uh, they can only go places the parents approve of and, and all that sort of thing. So uh, it's good that uh, a federal judge has already recognized that that argument by the attorney general makes no sense. And uh, it, it should bode well for our case in the end. Love it. Uh, tell me, let's uh pause here and ask you one last question that's a completely off topic but uh, you know for me and my money this is the most interesting case in california right now your fight with uh rob bonta there's you know this is the featured match of the night um what other cases are you working on anywhere in the nation that you where you're having real fun see and and i i use the term in quotes let's say um but you're you're enjoying the work in part because you believe in the real urgency of the issue and you believe that the right decision could may mean effective change either in a state or nationally well this week i'm going to go to omaha nebraska to argue in one of our latest cases in nebraska the state legislature did a good thing it passed a law that established a constitutional carry for firearms statewide said you know if you want to carry openly concealed you don't need to go to the government to get permission to exercise that right you can just do it and they said uh, any uh, laws that any local governments have passed restricting firearms uh, are null and void and they can't pass anymore this is a matter of state law now and we're protecting this for everybody statewide well, as soon as they did that the mayors of Omaha and Lincoln, Nebraska, issued executive orders saying, uh, well, actually, we're going to ban firearms on all public property. And that includes parks, trails, and sidewalks that go alongside any of those things. And of course, as a result of that, you can't just walk around carrying your firearm anymore because you might go past one of those places. You might want to walk through a park. You might want to go on a trail. Uh, and these places are not always the safest in the inside of cities. So something's very important to some people to be able to do that. And so we have challenged both of those in separate lawsuits saying that the state law here is really clear. It said you can't do this and you did it anyway. And uh, that's going to be important for Nebraskans, right? It's, and of course, the principle is important. Otherwise, the principle that uh, executive officials, whether we're talking about governors or mayors, one, they just they can't just make law through orders for one thing, whether there's a state law or not. You can't just make law for everybody by issuing an order that no legislative body ever approved of. And of course, when there are statewide protections for constitutional rights, 
all levels of government should respect that. So we're hopeful that we'll get these things knocked down and Nebraskans will get the protection for their right to bear arms that they're supposed to have under state law to say nothing of the Second Amendment. Well, now thousands of Californians know why I love you so much. You are entertaining. You quickly move to a great tale. Good luck in Omaha. Better luck even in Chino. Um, so excited to always talk to you. Jacob Hubert, president of Liberty Justice Center. Thanks again for joining me. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have today. Thanks for spending your time with us. You can always find Radio Free California on the National Review website, but it would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe. And of course, if you rate and review the show wherever you subscribe, that helps boost our profile and send to my email the evidence that you have, in fact, rated and reviewed the show. We're not telling you how to rate it or how to review it. Uh, but if you send us the evidence that you've rated and reviewed the show, David will send you a copy of his brand new book, Full-Time Work and the Meaning of Life. So you can email us that evidence, and you'll find that email in our show notes. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at the Radio Free UCA. That's at the Radio Free UCA. On behalf of my friend and co-host, David Bonson, we give thanks as ever to session producers Lucas Klaus, Brian Tong, and Glenn Hall, and to National Review podcast producer Sarah Schutte. Thanks also to Metalachi the LA-based mariachi metal band for our intro music and our outro music. Here it comes. La Revolución continua en la semana próxima.